Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, 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 hello. Welcome back to another episode of The Delicious Legacy with me, Thomas Dinas. Welcome to part three of the European medieval cuisine. And today we're continuing our adventure to medieval Europe through its cuisine and recipes and cookbooks of late medieval time. Welcome to part three of our exploration of the European medieval cuisine. On the last episode, we touched upon the cuisine of uh, Al-Andalus, the Arab medieval cuisine of the Iberian Peninsula, which fused elements from Spain, obviously, and uh, the continuation of the Roman Empire, and, uh, of course, Jewish elements and Jewish foods, and on top of everything else, most importantly, all the Arab elements that uh, were brought to the peninsula from the east, from as far as uh, Middle East. So all the new fruits and vegetables and techniques and uh, spices from uh, Persia and uh, Palestine and Egypt enriched and created a very diverse and dynamic uh, cuisine, which culminated with this amazing uh, cookbook called the Almohade Cookbook, which uh, we saw a couple of recipes last time. And now let's explore the English cuisine of the time and check the rich and complex history of spices and sweet and sour elements in recipes from medieval England. What was the food uh, like in uh, medieval England? The evidence we have is uh, after the Norman conquest, of course. So after 1066, Norman cooks were valued so highly that by 1086, Two royal master cooks, Walter in Essex and Tezel in Surrey, were being given manorial lands for their services. Walter's descendants became the king's official turnspits. As we've seen uh, on the previous episode from Alexander Neckham's accounts, we know that the high-class kitchens of the 12th century used um, cumin sauces for stewed ham. Uh, it mentioned many sausages, many different types of sausages and of course, uh, a variety of garden herbs. Bread and ale, both packed with calories and nutrients, lay at the heart of all diets. The barm of the ale, what we also call ale yeast, or the foam that forms on the top of the fermenting liquid when we make beer, uh, was so vital that it was sometimes known as God is good, because it cometh of the great grace of God. Bread, of course, did more than appease hunger, it marked your station in life. The poor ate muslin, tough brown bread of uh, roughly sieved wheat mixed with rye flour or even barley, millet, 
malt or beans or whatever was available, made at home or baked uh, on the communal baker's oven. Wheat bread, on the other hand, was known as pandemain or later manchet and was the whitest, of course, and the softest uh, of the breads. But it was obviously very costly. And everyone aspired to eat it, to have it. And the baker in uh, William Langland's poem The Vision of Pierce Plowman complained that even in times of dearth, beggars refused the bread that had beans in it, demanding milk loaves and fine white wheaten bread. Piers Plowman, as we've seen in the previous episode, is a Middle English allegorical narrative poem by William Langland. Otherwise, it's called William's Vision of Piers Plowman. And basically, it contains a lot of references and satirical criticisms and so on of life in the Middle Ages in England. As an English literature seems to be one of the greatest works of uh, the Middle Ages, and um, apparently probably influenced a little bit Saucer's uh, Canterbury Tales. As an interesting aside, throughout the medieval period and throughout the continent of Europe, people suffered from outbreaks of ergotism, which is poisoning from uh, bread made of fry grasses, which was infected with a fungus that caused nausea, seizures and even gangrene. LSD was ultimately synthesized as a byproduct of research into, into hallucinogenic symptoms of ergot, which sometimes called St. Anthony's Fire or the Dancing Mania. In Britain, it seems to have occurred less often and without the force of the European outbreaks. As we said, brewing was an essential uh, element of the society and as crucial as baking. Everyone more or less drank uh, uh, large quantities of ale, up to a gallon a day for adults with weaker, uh, what was called, small beers for uh, children. Alice de Brienne brewed 112 gallons twice a week and served each of her guests around three and a half pints for dinner, while the household of Humphrey of Stafford, Duke of Buckingham, consumed more than 40,000 gallons a year. In London, tree branches or ale stakes were raised outside inns to alert the official alcockers or aldermen that the new brew was waiting to be checked by them. But adulteration and um, short measures were part and parcel of uh, medieval society as well. In 1364, the alewife Alice de Constant was charged with concealing an inch of pitch in the bottom of her quart pot with a sprig of camphorous rosemary and a surviving wooden misrecord in St. Lawrence Church in Ludlow depicts a demon with a cheating alewife flung over his shoulder, marching her off to the jaws of hell. Three of the most important elements of Norman cooking, the pulverization of meat into pastes, the use of spices and sophisticated sauces, all sprang from the imperatives of humoral theory, just as uh, we've seen with ancient Romans and Greeks, and the Byzantines, of course. We know from records that different techniques also played their part, so that roasting had different warming and drying effect, while boiling or seething, the origin of the expression about bubbling rage, counteracted dry foods like beef. Cold fish were corrected by simmering in salt water, or diluted wine, or by frying. And the lamprey was considered so excessively dangerous that it was invariably drowned in red wine or salt before being roasted with warming herbs and spices. Humoral theories would remain at the center of British food culture and, of course, throughout Europe, 
until challenged by new sciences of the Enlightenment. Sauces were vital in tempering dishes, so that as a modern British cuisine tends to mint sauce, for example, medieval cooks paired acid with meaty richness, serving veg juice with capon and bacon. Bread-based sauces called cameline or gameline could be spiced up with raisins, pine nuts, ginger, cloves or cinnamon, and were served with most birds, including egret, crane, bittern and plover. But chowdron, a sauce of blood and livers, was the perfect companion for roast swan. A green sauce of sorrel or other sharp herbs with virtues, usually accompanied veal, and mustard made by grinding dried mustard seeds and mixing them with honey, wine or vinegar, corrected the moistness of pork, brawn or beef, warming the stomach and provoking appetite. A sauce aigre douche, bittersweet, satisfied a particular craving in the medieval palate for mixing sweet and sour together, and even summer's heat could be alleviated with cool sauces of verjuice, vinegar or pomegranate. Medieval cooks used aromatics that have since fallen from favour. Borage, with its hairy leaves that taste of cucumber, or the medicinal costmary also used to repel moths. But the richest flavourings, all but absent from Britain since the departure of the Romans, returned overland from Middle East with the Crusaders during the 12th century. It was then that spices re-entered the British kitchen, inspiring new and vivacious culinary wizardry. Aside from spices, we have intensely sweet dried fruits uh, were crucial, and exotic raisins of Corinth, what we call currants, prunes, figs and dates were all traded by spice merchants, besides the sacks full of almonds uh, which needed for thickening of sauces and stews or for use as a creamy alternative to milk on the fast days. By the end of 13th century, sugar was finding its way to Britain from Palestine along the new trade routes via Damascus and Venice and was beginning to replace honey. Sugar too was considered a spice and was sold in hard cones wrapped in paper. And as we've seen, sugar was the ultimate culinary luxury. During the Middle Ages, pastry evolved into a rough, inedible casing, or coffin, filled with closely minced meats, larded with marrow bone or oysters, flavoured with dried fruits, nuts and spices. Offal, such as livers, sweetbreads and giblets, were all highly esteemed, and the original humble pie were not in the least bit humble, uh, using uh, a multitude of entrails, and including testicles, tripe, hearts, palates, which is the tender roof of the mouth, gizzards, lamb's tails, cock swamps and fatty pig's feet in a rich spicy gravy. And the funny thing is that um, although offal was highly valued and prized and eaten very often, uh, they were also known as garbage. A word that uh, would uh, take a very, very different meaning uh, as tastes uh, changed over the centuries. Banquets and feasts were uh, part and parcel of the medieval high-class society and, of course, uh, the knights and um, the lords and so on. And it, they meant uh, marvels of culinary art uh, were served to the guests. So Walter of uh, Bibsworth described a profusion of, uh, of a court feast. So for first course, the head of a boar, larded, with a snout well garlanded, and enough fat and venison for the whole household. 
a great variety of cranes, peacocks and swans, kids, pigs and hens, rabbits in gravy, all covered with sugar, quite a different multitude of roasts, pheasants, woodcocks and partridges, field fares, larks and plovers, blackbirds and song thrushes, and fried meat crisps and fritters with sugar mixed with rose water. And when the table was taken away, sweet spice powder with large draggies, sugar-coated spices that is, maces, cubebs and enough spicery and plenty of wafers. So this abundance of dishes, this abundance of uh, um, foods was the embodiment of uh, success in the realm of mine, even if uh, the choicest ones were served only to the grandees, who might gracefully dispense bits and bobs to their favorites. The three broad courses of the medieval feast each contained an enormous variety of dishes. When the king feasted with the Lord Spencer in 1397, contemporary records show that the first course also consisted of venison and frumenty, capons, the head of a boar, roast swans, herons and pheasants, vast tarts and two subtleties, which are elaborated dishes meant to act as poses in the meal. The second course offered brawn, roast pig, rabbits, curlews, venison, peacocks and uh, teal, a custard, fritters and the subtlety, and the third dates in syrup, roast cranes and gilded peacocks, roast plovers, quails and great birds, larks, small pieces of meat, apple fritters, cheese and quince uh, dumplings, and the final subtlety. Of course, these feasts lasted for hours and hours, perhaps a whole day, and yeah, they were accompanied with lots of wine, and most of the food was probably not eaten directly by the king and the lords, but was also given around and shared with the various um, subordinates and servants and kids and wives and so on. But even so, each meal with its massive courses was fantastically rich and insanely complex to make. Since we just had Easter, uh, it's also worth mentioning that um, in the 1200s, the Countess of Leicester bought more than a thousand eggs for an Easter feast for her tenants at Dover Castle and rewarded her labors and tenants with succulent roast meats and spiced custards or pen perdue, bread dipped in egg, fried in butter and sprinkled with sugar. Sounds like uh, the forerunner for our eggy bread or French toast. So, also in homes across Britain at Easter, real eggs were cracked into cooking pots or boiled and served in a green sauce to symbolize the banishment of thin fare. And the favorite tansy or herbolat appeared. An omelette colored green with a tart tansy juice or with spinach fried golden in butter. If you were lucky, it might have a granting of nutmeg, a dash of cinnamon and a spoonful of cream or curds. But it was always a treat after the dietary rigors of abstention. Remember, medieval people uh, fasted most of the time of the year, and especially before Easter Lent for 50 days. On Good Friday, the fishmongers closed the stalls, and butchers washed their aprons and chopping boards and sharpened the knives in readiness. As village congregations hurried from Easter services, fresh meat as much as the resurrection must have been on their minds. Communal baking ovens were readied for pies, succulent veal, capon and pigeon were trussed for the pot. Tender spring lambs and cows were led towards the kitchen, and the March rabbit ran dead into the dish. Spring greens were picked and potted, dressed with herbs as fragrant as the new grass. It was time of rejoicing, a day of much delightfulness, the sun's dancing day and the earth's holy day, the start of the season of plenty.
And that's from the book Taste, the story of Britain through its cooking, by Kate Kolkohun. Andrea Trevisano, the earliest Venetian ordinary ambassador to the English court, wrote on 1497 that the British were very sparing of wine when they drink it at their own expense, not considering it any great inconvenience for three or four persons to drink out of the same cup. And when they mean to drink a great deal, they go to the tavern, and this is done not only by men, but by ladies of distinction. One of the most common recipes in medieval English cookbooks is called Momeni. It can also be found in an Italian cookbook written in Latin, the Liber de Cucina, where it appears as Mamonia. The dish name goes back to Arabic Mamunia, which originally was a sweet porridge that sometimes contained yogurt. The amazing transformation this recipe underwent in England over the centuries can be described below. So, this dish dates from Anglo-Norman times, and this was originally a dish containing ground beef, pork or mutton boiled in wine, served in a wine-based sauce which was thickened with capon meat and almonds. The sauce was seasoned with cloves and sugar, fried almonds were added, and the dish colored with indigo or with red dye. About 60 years later, it had changed into a dish made from beef broth, no wine, capons cooked in milk of almonds, and the whole thickened with rice flour or breadcrumbs. It was seasoned with somewhat stronger spices and colored yellow with saffron. After another 50 years, the wine had returned. Together with a great deal more sugar, the beef had vanished, but the capon remained. There were more spices, the almonds had been replaced by pine nuts and dates, and the color was now reddish-orange. This was part of a process in which it appears that as time went by, a dish tended to become sweeter, spicier, and more complicated. And for example, more dried fruit was added by the 15th century. And these transformations of the dish make it clear that the emphasis is on color. That, too, medieval Britain adopted from the Arabs. So in the Baghdad cookery book, just like other Arabic texts on food, that contains countless gold and saffron-tinted red, white, scarlet, gold, silver and vermilion-colored dishes. And I, we guess that thanks to the Crusaders, who experienced uh, the Arab cuisine in Antioch and the Crusader kingdoms in the Eastern Mediterranean, the Normans in Southern Italy and uh, Sicily, and also, of course, the Arab civilization in Spain, uh, all this brought together the cultures closer and uh, the saffron became one of the most popular ingredients in England and generally on the continent too. I'll be back after this short break. Hello there, sorry to interrupt. My name's Dr Neil Buttery and I'm host of the British Food History Podcast, a podcast that you, as a fan of the delicious legacy, might be interested in. I explore British food and its history in all its glory, with interviews with special guests, recipes, reenactments, and tracking down forgotten recipes and hyper-regional specialities. Previous topics include medieval eels, 18th century dining, curry, London street food sellers, breakfast, and the good old Yorkshire pudding. Search for the British Food History Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the delicious legacy. Cheers!
Today's episode is brought to you with the welcome support of Malbin Greek, UK's leading Greek delicatessen, supplier and distributor of premium Greek produce. Whatever you need, Malbin Greek has you covered. You can shop online and have the divine and delicious goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK, or you can visit the shop at Art17 Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SC16, 4ET, Bermondsey, London. Malbian Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The staple foods of medieval Italy were much the same as those of medieval Spain. Bread, olives, olive oil, and wine. They were complemented with cheese, some meat and fish, and a variety of fruits and vegetables. In both regions, the cookery of ancient Rome formed the basis that was gradually transformed by the cooking styles of different invaders. In the early Middle Ages, the southern parts of both the Iberian and Italian peninsulas were occupied by the Arab Muslims, who introduced new foodstuffs and new agricultural and cooking techniques. In Italy, Arab influence is especially strong in Sicily and on the southern mainland. Given the political connections between Catalonia and Naples in the late Middle Ages and afterwards, some Spanish and Hispano-Arab dishes also found their way into Italian cooking. Thanks to trade and the growth of towns, Italy had a rich middle class, and many patricians, from the powerful city-states of Florence and Venice, for instance, 
had the means to keep up or even surpass the nobility in conspicuous consumption. Given that the Italian nobility often lived in towns and took part in town affairs, and the social acceptance was determined more by wealth than by noble birth, the aristocracy and bourgeoisie in late medieval Italy intermingled more, and as a result, Italian society was less hierarchical than the rest of uh, Europe. Nowhere on the continent was there a richer and more diverse and sophisticated cuisine in the Middle Ages than in Italy, and it was there that the fork first became part of the table setting. By the late 14th century, it seems to have been in general use already, and no longer restricted to the tables of the rich. People in taverns even ate pasta with it. Luckily, we have uh, quite a few sources that um, help us um, study the cuisine and the food um, of Italy's past. So obviously we have cookbooks from different regions of the peninsula. Again, most of them survive from um, the 14th or 15th century. And there is also account books that tells us exactly what a certain group of people ate at certain times of the week or on feast days and on lean and Lent days. And also if they what they ate when they were on their own or when they were uh, having banquets with uh, uh, guests. Many well-known names of uh, dishes are things such as torta, erbolato, which is a herb omelette, migliacci, a pancake, savore, which is sauce, ravioli, tortelletti, which is a medium-sized pasta, bianco mangiare, which is a white dish, gelatina, and salsicetti, a type of sausage. For all of these um, different concoctions and dishes, uh, recipes are available in contemporary cookbooks, which is, um, is a rather good point about the recipe collections of the past. It did reflect the general cooking practice of the time, and rather than a cuisine that people only heard of or dreamt about, a cuisine that was not part of their everyday life. So basically, what we see here is cookbooks with uh, food that people ate on their day-to-day meals. Another interesting source for Italian food uh, are the illustrations in a medieval health book known as the Taquinum Sanitatis, which translates as Tables of Health. The text is the Latin translation of an Arabic dietetic manual whose illustrations were made in northern Italy sometime at the end of the 14th century. When it comes to Italian cookbooks of the Middle Ages, the most comprehensive and the most detailed one is the Libro de Arte Cocinaria by Maestro Martino de Rossi from Como. He was uh, the cook of one Sforza family in Milano, and later he was a cook of the Cardinal Ludovico Trevisan. And as such, he gained, Martino gained enormous experience. We don't know if uh, he wrote the recipes down himself, or he dictated them to a scribe around sometime in the mid-15th century. And of course, as such, the cookbook reminds us of earlier Italian recipe collections, and as well as containing recipes and techniques that were original to Martino. According to the book um, Food in Medieval Times, Martino's Art of Cookery book rose to international fame in, um, in medieval Europe, as Europe's first printed cookbook. And um, basically, Martino's recipes were translated into Latin 
by Bartolomeo Sacchi, who adopted the name of Platina, which is the Latin for Piadina, which is Sacchi's hometown. Such is more than doubled the length of the cookbook by adding an introduction, extensive material on diet and health, based on the teachings of uh, ancient Romans and Greeks, allusions to Virgil, folkloric attributes of plants, and a handful of recipes adapted from uh, that famous Roman cookbook that we talked in the past many, many times, a thousand years before Martinus, uh, which is Apicius de Recochinaria of the 3rd century AD. Platina used um, the Apicius cookbook to structure and organize uh, Martinus' recipes, and instead of dividing them as it was the custom in Christian Europe between feast and fast days, uh, dishes for these for these different days, he he organized them in um, in a way that uh, it was organized in Apicius' cookbook, and it was titled "On Right Pleasure and Good Health." And the Platina cookbook was not just the first printed cookbook, but one of the first printed books anywhere. It was first published in Rome around 1470 and reprinted in Venice in 1475. The combination of Latin and the invention of printing led to the dissemination of the cookbook throughout Europe in the 16th century and its translation into a number of vernacular languages including French, Flemish, German, Spanish, English and back to Italian, the language in which Martino's recipes had been written in the first place. Aside from Platina, Martino's collection of recipes was also incorporated into another Italian cookbook, Neapolitan Cook of the late 15th century. Pasta is, of course, what we associate, and it was associated as a specialty most commonly with Italy. And this was the case back then as well, in the late Middle Ages. And pasta was prepared fresh, in the home, or bought dried from merchants, such as the lasagne, or pasta makers, who in those days even had their own guild in Florence. Semolina was used to make lasagne and macaroni, and wheat flour for most of other cheaper kinds. Fermicelli, Fideli, and Tria were other popular types of pasta, and they were sold commercially too. The word Tria is an interesting one, which goes back to ancient Greek Itria, the earliest known word for what we can describe as a noodle nowadays, in the Mediterranean, of course. Uh, the Arabs introduced the term to Catalonia, where it appears as alatria. Gnocchi, too, were the form of pasta that is found in Italian cookbooks as early as the 14th century. So the recipe for cheese gnocchi goes as thus. If you want to make gnocchi, take some fresh cheese and mash it. Then take some flour and mix it with egg yolks, as in making migliacci. Put a pot full of water on the fire, and when it begins to boil, put the mixture on the dish and drop it into the pot with a ladle. And when they are cooked, place them on dishes and sprinkle them with plenty of grated cheese. In this case, the pasta is cooked in boiling water, but more frequently it was cooked in stock or in water to which salt, butter and oil were added. Sometimes it was cooked in almond milk or goat's milk with sugar. Many pasta dishes were served with spices or grated cheese as they are still today. An Italian invention is pasta filled with meat, vegetable or cheese, and egg puree, cooked in broth and served with grated cheese. These dishes were known under the name ravioli, tortelli or tortelletti. But the terms ravioli and tortelli were also used for fritters that contained similar fillings and were normally served with sugar. 
the big change came when Maestro Martino and other Italian cooks began to use flour in combination with eggs and oil or butter for the pastry. Known as torte, as we've seen on the previous episode, these pies with edible crust quickly became the rage, especially among the newly rich. Like old-fashioned pies, they had both a top and a bottom crust. They differed from the earlier pie versions, not just in the type of crust, but also in the type of filling, which was generally more elaborate and included more expensive ingredients, such as sugar and spices. The following torte recipe for eel would have been suitable for fast days. Eel pie If you want to make a pie of fresh eels, take the eels, half-boil them, and cook them with parsley and mint and purslane. Then cook and take them apart by hand. Discard the skin and the bones. Take good walnuts, skin them with boiling water, then crush them slightly. And take a libra, which is a pound, of almonds, make them into milk, and cook it until it becomes very thick, and set it aside to cool. It will be a junket. Then put these things in a pan, make a crust. Herbs should be chopped, and add strong spices, saffron, and 12 chopped dates. And when it's cooked, remove it. And if the eels were not fat, add good oil. Additionally, the Italian cookbooks, more so than other counterparts from across Europe, offer a wide range of recipes for vegetables and legumes. Broad beans, generally looked down upon as a lentil food for the poor, are the main ingredient in not just one, but several recipes of Maestro Martino. His preferred way of preparing broad beans is with sage, onion, apples and figs. A tasty little vegetable dish in Martino's collection is called finocchio, meaning fennel. The white part of fennel and a little white leek are finely chopped and fried with oil or salted pork. Then a little water, saffron and salt are added and the dish is brought to boil. Beaten eggs, presumably used as a thickener, are optional. Right, and that was uh, part three of uh, the European medieval cuisine. See you next time for part four, where we're now going to the Byzantine Empire. Thanks for listening. I've been Thomas Dinas, and this was the Delicious Legacy Podcast. This podcast can keep going only with your generous support. So please, if you feel uh, like um, you're enjoying the episodes and you want me to do more of them faster and in more detail please uh, support me on Patreon. Uh, If you search the Delicious Legacy podcast and Patreon, you'll find my page, and there you can uh, give from $3 a month and uh, keep me going. And on top, get access to exclusive material and extra bits from the podcast. And uh, I would like to thank all of my Patreon backers so far, and of course, uh, all of you listeners out there on Spotify, iTunes, YouTube that you keep listening um, the episodes. Please get in touch if you have any ideas for um, other episodes or if you have any questions on what you've heard on this one. And uh, please, yeah, uh, hit me up with your own um, ideas and uh, recipes from uh, medieval world and beyond. Goodbye. Thanks for listening.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 